6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Well, we're in the second session of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm just going to review a few things before we get started in chapter 2. The first few verses give you the flavor of the book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. And most scholars attribute this to Solomon. It was fashionable for a while for some critics to suggest it wasn't really Solomon, but most of those have been discredited. I think the abundance of conservative scholarship feels there's no question that this was Solomon. But verse uh, 2, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's going to use that word a great deal. Emptiness. Um, like a soap bubble that when it pops there's nothing left. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? What we need to keep in mind as we go in this book is that we're hearing from Solomon in terms of his wisdom. We're talking about his perspective of that which is under the sun. We don't have here uh, a perspective of under heaven. It's under the sun. It's a, it's a earth, it's earthly oriented Solomon's wisdom form of conclusions. But it does have some surprises as we go. Now, this basic presentation of vanity of vanities. Uh, is not only what he opens with, but also what he closes with. So we're going to find the same phrase throughout, and it close, the same set of verses you'll find equivalent to that in uh, the closing chapter 12. But let's talk a little bit about the vocabulary as we review here. The Hebrew term for this book is koheleth, which is the caller of an assembly. Could be a preacher, could be just an assembler in that sense. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the assembly, of course, is Ecclesia. And that's the way the Septuagint labels this book, and it's from the Septuagint, Ecclesia, that we get our English title for this book called Ecclesiastes. You may have wondered, where on earth did the title come from? That's the genesis of it. But it's the English transliteration of the Greek Ecclesia, which is the Greek translation from the Hebrew word, the Koheleth, or preacher, or, or calling assembly. Another word that is all through this book is the Hebrew word hevel, which means emptiness, futility, like a vapor. Uh, vanity is the way it's typically translated. We'll also keep running across the word ithron, which is the profit or the surplus or the gain. What does it gain a person to do such and so in the constructive positive sense? We're going to find and frequently talk about his, his frustrations. The word is amal which means to toil to the point of exhaustion and yet experience little or no fulfillment in your work. And uh, we'll come across that frequently. And also the word ra, which is sometimes translated evil, but it's not evil in the extreme theological sense. It just means grievous or adversity or misery uh, or frustration, what have you. 
So we have the book of Ecclesiastes. It's Solomon's sermon on the natural man's quest for the chief good. It may shock you to realize that not everything in the Bible is true. (gasps) What did he say? Not everything in the Bible is true. What we do know is that this is the message that God wanted you to hear, but it's the message from Solomon's natural wisdom. So bear that in mind. We're going to see things in it that we might not agree with and that we can rebut from the New Testament. But let's use that to try to gain the perspective that God would have us of this book. Now, this is a highly designed package. It's a cumulative treatise, but it concludes all is vanity. That's the standard presentation of this book, but I think you'll find there's some surprises because that's not what it concludes. Uh, Solomon makes six conclusions that are quite surprising. It is not pessimistic. Many people say, gee, that's such a pessimistic book. No, it's not pessimistic. It's bravely honest, but presented from man's wisdom. But uh, it does attempt to see beyond the ironies of life And we will get a glimpse of divine control before we're all through. Now, the total book consists of a quest by personal experiment in the first couple of chapters where we are today. We're going to then have a few chapters of uh, where he intensifies his investigation. He's going to talk about his pursuit for practical morality. And his basic conclusion there is that material things cannot satisfy the soul. And this is by Solomon, who probably had anything he could imagine. The wealthiest wisest man that lived, that's his conclusion. Then, of course, we'll, we'll look at the, his quest reviewed and concluded at the end. Now, the final significance in the book, just to give you a glimpse ahead, so we put this in perspective, says, Let us hear the consolation of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's out of Ecclesiastes in the closing verses. So this is a God-centered book, strangely enough, but we're going to take quite a tour of man's own perceptions of all this. Before we get bogged down in that, let's just take a few glimpses from the New Testament. Solomon says all is vanity, and that it's all very, you may sound very, very uh, pessimistic. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. So this is the rebuttal. The New Testament is really a rebuttal of Ecclesiastes in that sense. Another key verse we're going to come back to frequently is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Solomon's going to hammer this, that wealth and material things and labor and Great achievements, what have you, are all vanity. Not if they're in the Lord. Not if they're in the Lord. That's the key point to understand. Now, is this book, this ancient book by Solomon, relevant for us today? Well, Solomon saw injustice to the poor. Do we have that today? Oh, you betcha. Crooked politics. Do I have to say more? Incompetent leaders. Guilty people allowed to commit more crime. Does this sound like today? This is what Solomon also saw. Materialism and a desire for the so-called good old days. So this is very relevant. Let's we'll just jump in. In Ecclesiastes 2, to give you an outline of the chapter before we jump in, 
Solomon is going to test life in the first 11 verses. He's going to explore enjoyment in a few verses. And he's going to explore employment, doing great achievements through, through, uh, through others. Then he's going to explore a number of considerations from the point of view that death is certain. Death is certain. We're going to die. And from that point of view, he's dissatisfied with wisdom as an end in itself, dissatisfied with wealth as an end in itself, and with wealth for several reasons. You can't keep it. You can't protect it. You can't enjoy it as you should. would be sort of interim conclusions. But we, he's going to close the chapter with a command, in effect, to be satisfied. He accepted life. Having said all that, he does admonish us to enjoy life because it's real. And so let's go into it. One of the things that Solomon's going to do since his, uh, as he goes on this excursion, uh, he's going to, uh, he turned to pleasure as a source of complete satisfaction. He provided himself with wine, women, and song, luxuries, buildings, gardens. And although they brought him pleasure at the moment, we're going to discover that uh, there was no enduring satisfaction from any of these things. He was always seeking something new. And uh, he experimented with, one, experimented with one thing after another, always applying the wisdom that God had given him. Bear, bear in mind, this guy is no dummy. In fact, the Scripture tells us that God gave him special wisdom. He's re, he was regarded as the wisest man that ever lived. And he's going to highlight three stages of his exploration of the relevance of life. And his first one has to do with enjoyment. He said, I said in mine heart, go now, go to now, and I will prove thee with mirth, and therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, and yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And by the way, when he says, uh, I said in mine heart, and so forth, my heart conducting itself in wisdom, he did not blindly grasp at life's pleasures, but rather he conducted his search for satisfaction with thoroughness and care. And we're going to see how thorough, because he's going to double back on these topics in subsequent chapters. But this is the first review. Now see, the Hebrew people believed that God made men to enjoy the blessings of his creation. And you can support that with Psalm 104, also a New Testament from 1 Timothy 6, and so on. We're going to find out, especially in chapter 12 and following, that Solomon will uh, admonish us, his readers, uh, to enjoy God's blessings during the years of the youth before old age arrived and the body began to fall apart. He's going to talk about that. Eight times in this book, Solomon's going to uh, use the Hebrew word meaning pleasure. And so it's obvious that he did not, Solomon did not consider God some kind of spoiled sport uh, who watched closely to make sure nobody was having a good time. That's not the perspective at all. He mentions here several times, you'll notice he talks about mirth and he talks about wine and so forth. Uh, and laughter. It doesn't take any imagination to visualize him in his court or his banquet hall and uh, eating choice food, drinking and the very best wines or whatever, and watching whatever was the most gifted entertainers of the day. But when the party was over, King Solomon examined his heart and he realized he still wasn't uh, satisfied. He was empty. 
Pleasure and mirth were only vanity, like so many soap bubbles that quickly pop and nothing's left. And he wrote in the book of Proverbs, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and at the end of that mirth is heaviness. Well, this, you know, this, this kind of perspective of Solomon is relevant to all of us today because we are in a world that's pleasure mad. One of the primary industries in our country is entertainment. Primary exporter of that entertainment throughout the world. And millions of people will pay uh, almost any amount of money for experiences of various kinds to temporarily escape the burdens of life and so on. Now, there's nothing wrong with innocent fun, but someone who builds their life on that and only seeking pleasure is bound to be disappointed in the end. Why? Because, first of all, pleasure-seeking usually becomes very selfish, very self-centered, very self-possessed. And selfishness always destroys pure joy. One of the great discoveries in life is that enduring joy comes from involvements with others, not yourself. It's interesting, people who live for pleasure almost always end up with broken relationships as well as empty hearts. People are more important than thrills and frills. We're to be channels, not reservoirs. And the greatest joy, the greatest joy, comes when you share God's pleasures with others. Now something else that comes up is this whole idea of law of diminishing returns. We experience that in many ways. We find this in factories, we find this in our economy, but it's also in our lives. And if you live for pleasure alone, enjoyment will decrease unless the intensity increases. So when they reach a point of diminishing returns, there's little or no enjoyment at all, only bondage. Because you can get hooked with a, a thing. It can be a hobby, it can be any of a lot of things. But if you get involved in that, it can be a form of bondage. One of the best examples is drinking. For example, the more people drink, the less enjoyment they get out of it. You've got to have to eat either more drinks or stronger drinks in order to have pleasure. And the sad result, of course, is desire without satisfaction because at the end of the result, quite apart from the destructive aspects of the drinking, they also, it'll be uh, empty frustrations. And that's true of alcohol, of drugs, of sex, of uh, money, fame, um, almost any other pursuit. The same principle holds. And there's a third reason why pleasure can never bring full satisfaction because it only appeals to part of a person, not his total being. It doesn't involve the total being. And this is the big difference between shallow entertainment and uh, some true enjoyment. To the degree you're totally involved, that, to that degree it can, it can be more enduring. See, entertainment has its place, but it's only temporary. True pleasure has to come from something that builds character by enriching the total person. Well, let's move on. Solomon continues, I made me great works. He talked about the enjoyment. Now we're going to talk about employment. He's going to talk about uh, uh, the kind of... Pro he got, got himself excited about projects, hoping to discover something that would make life worth living. I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth the trees. Can you imagine this guy? He was king, the most prosperous king the nation ever had, ever or ever would have after that. Wealth was absolutely no constraint. And he obviously could undertake some pretty incredible works, including the temple. He's the guy that built the temple. 
Build me houses, build me vineyards, gardens, orchards. We can just imagine the scope of what he could undertake if he chose to. Plant all kinds of trees and fruits, maybe pools, bring forth the trees and so forth. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had a great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. You know, he really had workers. He, uh, uh, he could have added that he had drafted 30,000 Jewish men to work on projects. We find that in 1 Kings 5. And he had two kinds of slaves, by the way, those which he purchased and those that were born in his household. Now, his father David conscripted strangers in the land for projects at 1 Chronicles 22, but Solomon even drafted his own people. And by the way, the people resented that. We'll encounter all that when we get to 1 Kings 12. Now, he gathered him silver and gold and so forth. He obviously accumulated wealth of all kinds, not just gold and such, but flocks and herds and so on. Here we're listening to or reading the writings of the wealthiest wisest man in the whole world, but he was unhappy. Because activity alone does not bring lasting pleasure. You know, this is a trap that so many of us fall into. We get involved in a career, a mammoth project. You know, I often think about Hollywood, for example, these people that will give of themselves for some movie, and I don't mean just the actors, but the writers and the skilled workmen and the thousands of artisans, and they plunge into this project for a year, maybe two. And what's over, it must be a strange, empty feeling. If you've ever been involved in a highly creative commitment, you know, that's draining. It's fun. It's involving. But it's just a project. In, in, in the business world, I've frequently made the point validly that the relationships survive the projects. Very important as you get into that kind of a world, those projects can be worth doing, but they're not an end in themselves. What you do carry away from this project are relationships. And some of those can be very life-enduring, some of those can be very constructive for a long period of time. Psalms says, So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. That's quite a statement. His increase was greater than anyone else in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Wow, what a statement. None of us, I don't think, can make that quite that statement because we have, we have a constraint of resources. Here's a guy who had no constraint of resources. Anything he could articulate, anything he could think of, anything he could imagine was his. They would see to it. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, we, we could have our fantasies, and, say, I, I, and I have to believe it was, it'd be fun for a while. I tried to uh, find, I didn't get my chance to track down the quote. It's a famous quote from some guy on Wall Street, and I can't remember which one it was, for sure. He says, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. <laughs> He's famous for that. But uh, it's true. I think most of, us could, most of us would have our fantasies. Boy, if we, if we won the lottery... Boy, we could do X and Y and Z. We all have our little list, you know. But the reality is, that would probably, first of all, expose us to great danger. 
great danger. Danger of idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. He said, I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labors, and this was my portion of all my labor. He liked what he was doing. It was fun. It wasn't like he was faced with an onerous task. He loved these projects, and yet he found them fundamentally empty, ultimately. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Notice his perspective. I want to keep us, keep our, our focus on this. His perspective is under the sun, on the earth. He's not talking about heaven. He's not talking about an afterlife. He's not talking about spiritual things. He's talking about just the tangible realities in front of him. I looked on all the works. What it literally says in the Hebrew says, I turned to consider. See, he stopped in the middle of all the sensuous indulgence to take stock of the results. And he concluded that a certain amount of good can be gained from pleasure. It still yields no permanent gain. And you'll find this term all through the King James rendering, the vexation of the spirit. That's the way it's tra- the King James translators translated the Hebrew. Another way to translate it was probably closer, chasing after the wind. The vexation of the word, the ruach is the word of spirit, is all the word for wind. Just like pneuma in the Greek is, is spirit or, or air or whatever. This can be trans vexation of the spirit, but it also the, the the real thought there is it's like you do all this and you're chasing after wind. When you're all through, there's nothing there. It's fun to chase it maybe, but there's nothing there when you're through. It's sort of a graphic picture of effort expended but with no results that endure. He'll use that phrase nine times in the first half of the book. See, he had delight in the labor, and there's great joy in great projects, but what happens when it's finished? And uh, you quickly discover that the fun is in the chase, not the, not the winning. It's fun to win, and yet all the rest is really vanity. Henry Ward Beecher said, Success is full of promise until men get it. And then it is last year's nest from which the birds have flown. That was his expression. Now, don't get the impression that Solomon is, is, is condemning work itself. Because work is a blessing from God. You realize that Adam had work to do before the uh, fall? In Genesis 2.15, that's before the fall, Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Adam had a, a work detail. Not all work was a result of sin. Uh, 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 you understand? That's, all, that's a common misconception. And, and Solomon himself, in the book of Proverbs, exalted diligence and condemned laziness. He exalted diligence and condemned laziness. And boy, that indicts us all, I'm sure, in our culture especially. Because he knew that any honest employment, any honest employment could be done to the glory of God. Any honest employment can be done to the glory of God. Paul says the same thing, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do. What's whatsoever? What does that include? Everything. Whatsoever you do, whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, it says do all to the glory of God. If what you're doing 
can't be done to the glory of God, you better take another look at it. By the way, all of this begins to give us a clue as to why there are so many achievers that are unhappy people. It's always disturbing to discover great tragedies, either of divorce or of, of suicides or, or, or some other form of dissipation that happened to the winners. You can understand why it might happen to someone who's is down. Business failed, he's bankrupt. You can understand where they might resort to some extreme measures of some kind. Alcohol, drugs, or whatever. What's shocking is to find people who are at the top of the heap, it would seem, who are, you discover are desperate people. Desperate people. The Mary Monroe's and whatever that you think, superficially, on the top of their world, be it what it is. And you discover behind the scenes they are miserable. How interesting. <laughs> Ambrose Bierce wrote a, a collection of, of, of very cynical definitions called the Devil's Dictionary. It's a very commonly well-known classic, I guess. Uh, I have a copy of it. Uh, he, he calls achievement the death of endeavor and the birth of disgust. <laughs> and it's funny because it's so accurate, it's so vivid, and yet it's not what you expect. See, the overachiever is someone that's always trying to escape from himself by becoming a workaholic. And of course, that only results in disappointment. And by the way, when workaholics retire, they got real problems because then they really feel useless and sometimes die of the decompression or lack of meaningful activity. It's really interesting to discover how many executives who endured all kinds of trials and when they retire, they often die in just a few years from the inactivity and the decompression and they, they can't adjust to the shift from the world that they had adopted. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.